Father, just as we turn to your word this morning, I just ask that you would just help me to um, just have the words to speak, Lord, um, that what I say would be taken with the intent that is behind it, um, and that we would be helped through this in some way, Lord. We ask your, your guidance, um, your direction in everything that I say this morning, and Lord, that um, you know, just open our hearts to in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, um, I read the passage um, from verse 13 to, and I can't remember exactly where I start, stopped, but in, the, in this passage, we have these woes that Jesus declares, and we started looking mainly at the, the first one in verse 13. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and ye go neither in, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And we looked at an example where they were doing that exact thing. And when I was looking at these things and looking, doing some studying on on these woes, when I did uh, a search about it, I saw that there's a discrepancy in how many woes are declared. And one says there's seven, one says there's eight. And so I'm like, oh, I looked and I counted and yeah, there's eight. And I had written what I have to say about this next one prior to me looking into this issue. But what I discovered is that if you're not reading, and I can't, I can't say across the board every version, but if, you're not, if you don't have a King James Version, verse 14 is in more cases than not, probably not there. <laughs> okay? So if it's not there, and I, when I realize that, like if I'm going to spend my focus on verse 14 today, which was my intent, if that verse isn't in your Bible, I don't want you sitting there spending the entire morning service dwelling on that instead of listening to what I have to say about the verse. And so I just want to, and I don't want to spend my time on this. This is not my topic of choice to speak about, of what version of the Bible you're reading. I preach out of the King James for a reason. It's because I believe what it says to be completely the word of God. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But I think you should realize that the reason you like my attitude towards how I preach and what I preach is because of my view of that scripture. And so you don't have to agree with it, but I think you should realize that what you like about me is my belief in that, um, if you like me at all, but you're here for some reason, so. <laughs> but that's, this is where the issue comes up, and it's like, I actually believe that the words on my page are literally the words of God. This is complete, inerrant, perfect. And so, when I look at that, and I say, my ver this has this verse here, and if yours doesn't, I'm gonna tell you that there's an error in what you have in your hands. I went through, and this is why I don't want to spend my day 
and my Sunday after Sunday going over this. But I went through and I copied and pasted 24 pages of differences, and then I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list, of differences where there's something omitted or changed from in the English translation between the King James and other versions. And it, I think we need to understand why those differences exist. And so that's my, the only thing I really want to say about it this morning is where those differences come from. And this, comes, this really comes down to faith, right? This comes down to, you can't go through history, you can't pin down that this is what's right. It's going to come down to faith one way or another. And so, but we need to understand the differences, why, there's, why there is a difference, why there's a, a verse missing, and there's not just one verse missing, guys. The difference is, is where the origin of our source text comes from. When we say, let's turn, or let's look at the Greek, or the Greek says this, or the original says this, there's no such thing as the original. There's not a single copy of an original text of scripture anywhere to be found in the world that we can identify as being an original text. So every, every single text that we have in our, that we can look at is a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of one of those texts. When the King James was translated, it wasn't the first English translation. There was a series over the, a couple hundred years of people working get the Bible into the English language. And the text that they use and the culmination of things that they gathered together is what they now refer to as the Texas Receptus. And isn't this interesting? <laughs> but the Texas Receptus is, there was over 5,000 copies of texts that were brought together and compared. And they agreed in over 95% of what they said. Um, and that's what was used. There was a, I watched a guy trying to describe this. If you have 95% similarities, there's only 5% differences and 5,000 copies that we're comparing together. Use this analogy. He says, if I wrote a five sentence letter and I copied it five times, and I gave a copy to, eat, to five different people. But if I left out one sentence out of each copy that I had made, but a different sentence of the five, would you five people be able to determine what my original document said? Yes. If you compare all five, you would say, I'm missing this. Well, okay, but I have that, but I'm missing this that you have. And among the five, you would have the complete thing. When you have 5,000 documents and only 5% difference, that's a lot easier to, to determine what is missing or wrong and come up with a complete thing. And so that's basically what we're looking at when the King James was translated. All of our modern versions are translated not from that Greek text and there's not a single Greek text. You, don't, you can go and buy a Texas Receptus Greek New Testament, but there's not just a single Texas Receptus Greek New Testament because it was all of these, and so they, 
there are a couple of different versions of that based on those differences, right? So there's not an absolute single document that you could just open and say this is it. This is what they translated from. It doesn't exist. It was a culmination of things. But when they translated the modern versions, that was based on not that text. It was based primarily on other documents that were found, other texts of the Bible that were found in different places. And if you look at where those documents were found, it, it's not a great source of information. If you, the, one, of the, one of the main ones came from Alexandria, Egypt, and the other main one came from, I didn't write all this down. <laughs> Essentially the Vatican, but it's not directly. Um, but through a Catholic monastery. And so they found, they found these old texts and they found that they don't agree with what the Texas Receptus was. So it is Vatican because it's Vaticanus and Sinaiticus is the, the names of these documents. So these were used, but you realize that in the New Testament or in the Gospels alone, there is over 5,000 differences between those two documents. Over 5,000 differences. And I don't know what the percentage is. I didn't come up with that. But, but there's differences between the documents that they used to create what they call the Greek New Testament. So if you go to a bookstore and, and buy what they call a Greek New Testament, it is based off of those documents. This is put together by a couple of guys named Westcott and Horv, and it was worked on, and it's Nestle's, it's Nestle's, right? It's a hot chocolate mix. <laughs> Nestle's, um, and there's a couple of other names that go into it, which is the, like the main book that you buy if you bought a Greek New Testament. It will be Nestle's Greek. But it's based on a completely different set of manuscripts. The reason people like those and the reason scholarship in the Christian world really like goes to those rather than the other is because they're older. And they, in watching, listening to people teach on this subject, every time someone opens their mouth about the age of the manuscript that is found, they always, always say older and more reliable. Does older make it more reliable? No. What happens to a book that gets used frequently? It gets worn out, right? If you're using a document, if, you're, if you have a Bible that you read daily and you study in and you're flipping back and forth, I, I've managed to take fairly good care of, of this Bible that I have. But there's folded pages, and there's stains, and there's tears, and there's the binding. It opens to certain passages much easier than it does others. <laughs> if I've spent a lot of time there, right? you open the Bible, and it opens to where I've been studying a lot. right? And it gets worn out. And eventually, it gets almost so destroyed. And I've one of my older Bibles is almost unusable because of it being so worn. What do we do when that happens? Is we stop using it, we typically would discard it in some way, and we get a new one. In history, that's a scroll, and we're, 
the more it's unrolled and rolled and rolled and unrolled and used and read and handled, it gets worn out. That means that that document gets destroyed. And over time, it will be copied into a new document and we'll get rid of the old one. So what does that indicate? Is that the older document that still exists is actually less used. The reason the other ones aren't as old is because they've been used and then copied and replaced. So an older document that's not being used, not being studied, might still exist, but that doesn't make it a better one. If you look into the history of Alexandria, Egypt, there's a lot of heresy that was taking place there, a lot of false teachings denying the deity of Christ, denying many of the doctrines that we stand for today. Is that the reason why some of these verses are missing? If you look at the ver verses that are missing out of some of the modern versions, they're verses that speak of the deity of Christ. They're verses that speak of the Trinity. They're verses that speak of the blood of Christ and his sacrifice. There's some important things. And I've heard people comment that, well, they were, got added to the Texas Receptus and they shouldn't be there. I, I, didn't, I didn't make any notes on this. because I, didn't, I don't really want to even <laughs> open my mouth on the topic. But um, there was a verse that, was, that I saw commented on that speaks, um, uh, it's in Paul's writing, maybe Corinthians, um, that kind of lists some of the Ten Commandments. In the King James, the commandment of thou shalt not lie, I think it was phrased differently, but bear false witness, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness, was included in that verse. And in the modern text, the, the other Greek text, that commandment of thou shalt not bear false witness was omitted from that verse. And just the comment was made that what's more likely, somebody adding this when they're making changes to the Bible or someone omitting that when they're making changes to the Bible, right? And it's just little things like that, that the more you study it, and it depends what direction you're studying it from, of course. You go online now, it's actually hard. I found it hard to find people, when you just search the topic, it's hard to go online and find an argument that's from my perspective. You'll find countless people criticizing what I'm saying right now. But if you look at it from this perspective, it's, this is the Bible-believing perspective that I have. The other perspective is a Bible-doubting and a questioning. And you go to Genesis chapter 3, Where's the origin of sin? Is Satan says to Eve, Yea, hath God said? He, he casts doubt on what God has said, on the instructions that God has given. And that's exactly what happens when you start questioning, does this verse belong or does this verse not belong? Should it say it this way or should it say it that way? There's doubt being cast on what has God said. Does that mean, I'm not going to stand up here and I'm not going to jump up and down and thump on my Bible and say, you need to read the same one. I, like, I don't care, but I just want you to understand <laughs> that there's a reason for me to believe this one. <laughs> and if you don't, fine. But I just encourage you to look at it a little bit. 
and at least realize that the reason I, there is a basis for my stance on this position and and what I teach and preach on it. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about the topic. Um, I didn't print off those 24 pages, or might have been 27 pages of these differences. You'd do well to do some of that looking. Anyway, let's read verse 14, if that's all right. <laughs> verse 14 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. It's an interesting verse. When it says, oh, sorry, my back is sore. <laughs> it just moved the wrong way. Um, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. What does that mean? <laughs> They're not sitting there plop it on the table and start eating, right? Like, <laughs> we devour widows' houses. Like, they're taking advantage of people that they should be helping. Right? Like, can you imagine if you have someone in the church whose husband and family have died and they're gone, and this woman's by herself, and she needs, she, like, she doesn't have what she needs to take care of herself. And yet the church is demanding, well, you haven't paid your tithes, and you, well, there's a funeral expenses, and, well, your husband left me in charge of his estate, and, well, there's expenses involved, and I need to sell your house, and, well, right? Like, there's a lot of, extortion and problems. You go look at any religious organization that's been around for a while. <laughs> and that's almost exactly what happens, is they swindle people out of their money and in the name of God. And it's completely wrong, the way that it's done. You can see in some stuff Sorry if you listen to Careful a Dollar. I'll just criticize him briefly here. <laughs> but no, um, there was a bunch of stuff came out just this recently. And he's a prosperity preacher, right? And he's repented in a service just a few weeks ago of, of his preaching on tithing. And he corrected himself and he said, if anything that I've written or said up to this point, throw it away. But that's, that was a good, a good start. Um, and he's changed his, he, or he had corrected his teaching on tithing. Well, this guy's a multimillionaire because of his teachings on the tithing. I'm pretty sure he hasn't given all that back. And, right? So there, there's, there's some outward appearance of repentance, but I don't think the follow-up, and that's, I've seen a lot of criticism about him based on, on the follow-up. Like, good first step, but... Now let's see some, <laughs> some action to, to back that up, and, and it's, it's missing. But that's, that's basically what he's been doing. That's that whole community does that, is they're, they're trying to just get your money, and they preach a really nice, feel-good message, kind of unlike what I tend to do. But 
They make people feel good about themselves. They make you want to give your money to them and feel good about doing that. Anyway, and so Jesus is a little critical here of the scribes and the Pharisees and the, these religious leaders doing that kind of thing to the people that they're actually supposed to, as a church, take care of. Um, let's just, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to Exodus 22. We'll just look at this a little bit here. Exodus 22 and verse 22 and 23 says, Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. That's, (laughs) God cares about the widows and the fatherless children. And he's, very adamant that you are not to afflict them, you're to help them. Um, Isaiah chapter 10 gives some instruction in that area as well. Isaiah chapter 10, just the first couple of verses says, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of thy, of my people that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless we're <laughs> there's some he's calling out this action of taking advantage of people that are needy people. We'll do one more verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 25. Proverbs 15 verse 25 says, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. (laughs) He will establish the border of the widow. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Careful. (laughs) Careful your attitude towards less fortunate people than you, right? These are the the, the warnings given. And there is, for some reason I didn't go digging up all the instruction given on, I think very close in that Isaiah passage, it tells us that we are to take care of the fatherless and the widows and the poor. That's our instruction as, and I say as the church, we are instructed as the church in the New Testament to do that, to take care of the fatherless and the widows. Israel was instructed in the Old Testament to do the same thing. They were given those same commands to to take care of those that were in need, to take care of those that were less fortunate. That's God's plan and desire for us is to, do you see God's heart in that? <laughs> People describe the God of the Old Testament as like this harsh, judgmental. Yes, he was. His character hasn't changed, though. 
And you see the compassion and love in that Old Testament God as well, in his warnings of how you're taking care of the fatherless and the widows and the people that are in need, the poor among you. He takes care of those people, and he does it through instructing you and me to do those things. That's, that's the God of the Bible. Like People are so hard on God over his judgment of people, but God's judgment is just, right? It's, it's based on his care and love and our wrongdoing. <laughs> so anyway, this is, Jesus deals with that. He doesn't go into this long thing. He just calls it out. Woe unto you, for ye devour widows' houses. Just a simple statement. And continues on, he says, There, sorry, and for a pretense, make long prayer. And I'm just going to look at a couple of verses here, a couple of the passages on this idea, this pretense, for a pretense, you make long prayer. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 gives, it was right after Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes there. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. It says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Ever look at that verse before? <laughs> this is like a, don't, don't be hasty to utter things before God. Slow down. <laughs> and it says, let your words be few that you're uttering before God. And it says, because he's in heaven and you're, you're down here on earth. He sees the bigger picture and you're just seeing a tiny little part of it. And I think the, the implication is like, we come to conclusions <laughs> And we're telling God what he ought to be doing in this situation. And we haven't got a clue of the whole situation. And God sees every detail of it. And here we are trying to instruct God and tell him how to react, how to respond, and what he ought to have done or ought to be doing in a particular situation. So instead of having these long prayers, we need to, to back that off just a little bit and maybe just... Reduce that and <laughs> like, God, you see it. And here's, here's what I see. Please deal with this. And just be a little bit more cautious in the way we try to instruct God in circumstances that we, we think we understand, but truly we don't understand it the way that God understands it. In Matthew... Chapter 6, we see God, God, Jesus, teaching how to pray. <coughs> Speaking of, for a pretense, they make long prayers, right? So, already we see that the Bible gives some instruction not to have these long prayers, but to maybe shorten that up a little bit. But uh, here, 
Jesus gives us some instruction on, on how to pray. So Matthew 6, if we start in verse 5, he says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, does that, is he saying, say these exact words? Well, he just finished saying, don't do, use vain repetitions. <laughs> and if you've ever been in a, like, um, we've been to a Lutheran church that Jen's family goes to, and every, every service they quote this, this Lord's Prayer. And it's, it's this droning, meaningless sound that comes out of people's mouths. The words are there. Nobody's thinking about what they mean. There's no intent behind them. It's just a vain repetition. And so by appearing to follow Jesus' instruction on how to pray, you're actually following Jesus' instruction on how not to pray. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that great? <laughs> so when we see this instruction on when you pray, use not vain repetitions, but, but say this or, or speak like this. And... I'm not going to spend my, my time this morning analyzing this, but you can look at this as an instruction manual on like an order of prayer and our attitude in prayer. As you come to God, our Father, which art in heaven, you recognize who God is, his person, his character. You're coming to him with an attitude of respect because of who he is. And hallowed be thy name. You, you add some worship in there because of who he is. So we come with a, an attitude and acknowledging God. Instead of just expecting him to submit to our every woman desire, right? It's a completely different attitude of prayer. And you can go through this and you can see that kind of instruction as it follows through. It's like, there's an order to this. And it just affects our attitude in the way we approach God. And my first thing when I come to prayer shouldn't be the thing that I want God. And it should be treating him like a magic lamp, right? I rub the ramp, the genie, and the genie comes out and I get to make three wishes. Like, that's, you know, I, I read my three chapters of the Bible this morning, and so now I'm going to go to prayer and I can, God's going to grant my three wishes, right? It's not how it works. This isn't the God of the Bible. God, God loves us, cares for us. He wants good things for us. 
but he wants things for our good. And the things that we want aren't always for our good. When our, when our children really, really, really want that candy or that snack or that treat, that special thing, when your five-year-old wants a chainsaw for Christmas, you don't give him a chainsaw for Christmas. You give him the one with the little, the little balls that go around the chain, right? Like, <laughs> you can pretend for a while. I'm not giving you the real thing so you can, <laughs> can handle it, right? But like, there's things that our children want that they, they really want it. And they'll beg and plead and cry and, and have a fit when they can't have it. But as a parent, do you withhold that because you just want that child to suffer and to, to be miserable? I don't know a parent that wants their children to be miserable. We, we withhold things because we know what's good for our children. We know that this, this thing is not a, a benefit to you at this time. And there might be times where, like, we let our have kids have kid candy, right? It's not necessarily good for them, but it's a treat, and it's something they can enjoy. And there's a time when it's an appropriate thing. But when we come to God and ask him for, for things... It's not always the right time and place, and it's not necessarily in our best interest to have that. And God, if we approach God with the right attitude of thy will be done, not mine, and we, we put the things before him that here's my understanding of the situation, and here's what I see, and God, please do something with this. And we let him deal with it is how we ought to be coming to him in prayer. But he gives some instruction at the beginning of that, and I think it was in Bible study, we, we were just talking about a couple weeks ago of, you know, are you doing, are you doing things in the church for a pretense, right? Like, do you, do you like to be the one that's called on for this purpose or that purpose? I think I said this in, on a Sunday a couple weeks ago, right? What's your reason for wanting to be involved? Is it because you just want to serve God, or do you want people to see you? in that position and to think that you are more spiritual maybe than you actually are. And so we just need to be careful in those things. I, I know I turned to this other passage a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to uh, Luke chapter 18. I think I... Jesus kind of dealt with the same... same issue um, as he was instructing the people on what not to be like about the Pharisees. <laughs> he, he mentioned some similar things, so I've, I'm kind of overlapping here a little bit, but I think it's an important thing for us to understand this idea of prayer. So Luke 18, I'll just read the, the story again, starting in verse 9. Um, it says, And he said, or he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful, to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And 
If you look at that, verse 14 in Matthew, it says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. For a pretense, like, they do it to be seen of people. And that's exactly what he's describing is the, the one, a Pharisee, goes and he stands in a public place and openly proclaims, and it says he's prayed thus with himself. He's not even praying to God. He's just proclaiming, using God's name, but without any intent in his heart that this is, that God's listening to the words that he's saying. And he says, I thank you that I'm not as other men. What a great way to pray, right? <laughs> if we think that we're something that we're not, if we think that I'm living a life that's better and cleaner and more holy, more righteous, if I've got things figured out better than you or the other guy or, or some other person, and I'm comparing myself with others, we need to realize that my spiritual walk with the Lord is my <laughs> is mine. <laughs> when we have when we have kids, and this isn't maybe a good example in my, my family, but we had kids almost four years apart. As Darren was growing and learning to do things, we didn't expect Paul to be at that same level as Darren in those skills and the knowledge. Darren finished his high school. Paul hasn't, right? Paul, we don't expect Paul to know all the things that Darren knows or to understand all the things that Darren understands because he was born four years later. <laughs> spiritually, it's the same way. And it is a little different spiritually as well, though. We can look at a person who has come to the Lord and begins to grow spiritually. We can have an expectation that that person is kind of weak in their faith, doesn't understand things fully, <laughs> as compared to somebody who grew up in the church, was saved as a child, and studied, and has stayed and worked in the church, worked in the Bible to understand the scripture for years and years, ought to be more mature as a Christian, more mature in their faith and in their understanding of scripture than that person that just believed and has just started to study and grow, right? There's a maturity difference there. When I look out at you guys, there's a lot of differences in where you're at in your spiritual walk. And we learn things at different times. And some of that is based on what we've been taught at different times in our growth. And so I can't expect you all to be at the same place at the same time. Because you're not all, <laughs> you haven't started at the same point. We we're all have different starting points and we've got different experiences and different teachings. And so our growth varies so much. And so when just that expectation of, I'm, I shouldn't be able to look at myself and think, well, I'm, you know, I'm so much better than you. Well, by the time you're at the point I am, time-wise, you might be far surpassing where I am spiritually, <laughs> right? 
it's, there's differences, and we shouldn't have the expectations on, on people based on, on time and, and those kinds of things. But we should never be like this Pharisee who thinks that there's something. The more you look at Paul and his description of himself, the more spiritually mature he became, it's like the lower he saw himself. It's like he saw every flaw. Like, certainly, the sin in his life was probably, from an outside perspective, like, this guy is, like, constantly serving God. He's sacrificing everything. I've never heard a foul word out of his mouth. I don't see a bad attitude anywhere. He never talks about people that when he shouldn't. Like he, we can't find a thing wrong with this guy. And yet, when he writes about himself, he's like, Oh, like woe is me! Like I'm, I'm undone. Like oh, I'm such a terrible. I'm the I'm the worst. Like I'm the chief of sinners. Like he describes himself in this way that is like the opposite of this Pharisee, and yet he's literally the opposite of this Pharisee. <laughs> he is spiritually mature, and he his life exemplifies what a Christian ought to be like. But he doesn't look at himself in that way, and we don't. We shouldn't be looking at ourselves in that way. We should always see that room for improvement and the room for change. And so we should always be like the publican that was here who wouldn't lift up his eyes towards heaven. Just, he just knew. <laughs> it's like, man, I got a long ways to go. But his heart was right, wasn't it? Like, his desire was to please God. His desire was to correct the wrong in his life and to make those changes. This Pharisee had no intention of making any change in his life. He's like, he was exactly what he wanted to be. He looked good on the outside, and that was all he wanted. He just wanted people to see that he looked good, he looked spiritual. The, the publican? Man, that guy doesn't look very spiritually mature, does he? He's down on his face and like, woe is me, like I'm... He's just beating on his breast, God be merciful to me. It's like he, he knows there's a problem in his life. We don't look at that as a spiritually mature person. It doesn't look like a spiritually mature person to us, right? On the outward. He's not doing it to be seen by people. He's doing, like, this instruction, like, to pray in your closet. It's not that don't let anybody know that you pray. <laughs> it's not that. It's don't, just don't do it so that people... So that you're doing it as a pretense that people see something in you that's not there. Or even if it is there, you shouldn't be doing it so that people think of you that way. You're just doing it because this is what I do. When I get up in the morning, I open my Bible. So whether that's in the privacy of, like, well, Saturday, every Saturday is, is my mainly my, my biggest day of study preparing for Sunday. And... Kids have a, a friend over. I sit in the living room to study most of the time. And I continue to sit in the living room to study when the friend's over. He sees me with my Bible and a computer and you know my notebook and whatever every time he's over. <laughs> I'm not doing it for him to see me doing these things. It's just, this is what I do. He just walked into my environment where I'm doing that, right? That's fine. <laughs> But if I came out of my office to go and sit where he could see me so that he knows that I'm doing the studying, that's different, right? 
You're doing it for the wrong reasons now. So that's what Jesus is talking about, of don't, like, pray in the closet. <laughs> you, do, you don't do it to be seen by people. You do it because this is what I do, because I want to please God in my life. Anyway, I need to stop. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, it's just, as we're looking at your word, Lord, um, I'm glad for it. I'm glad for the things that we see Jesus dealing with in people's lives. And it seems harsh sometimes, the things that he's saying, especially to this group, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's calling them hypocrites. Um, Lord, we can, we can be those people in our attitude and the way that we present ourselves before others. Um, Lord, just help us to have a right attitude before you, um, that we would be more like this publican in this story that sees who he is and sees the room for improvement and just has a desire to, to get that right before you. So Lord, we just, again, we just ask that you would just continue to, to help our attitude, help, our, help us to have a right approach as we come to you in prayer, Lord. And just, we just commit this time and these ideas to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.